You're listening to the Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast with LD and TJ. Can you dig that, baby? <laughs> Hey guys, welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD, and unfortunately, TJ is not here with us this week. Uh, She is very sick, but I am fortunate to be in quarantine with someone who had some free time and could sit down with me. So, you guys, welcome my husband, William. Oh, hey. Good try. I did my best. It's not the same. I'm sorry. I got plenty of time to practice since we're home. Yeah, this has been a scary time for everybody. And uh, if you don't care to listen to us banter about this, I guess skip ahead like three minutes. But (laughs) we got the news, I believe it was yesterday, that uh, Kenny Rogers passed away at age 81. And so, of course, we will be doing an episode on him. But I grew up listening to Kenny Rogers and... That was incredibly sad. We have COVID-19 that's kind of ravaging our world right now. So in the grand scheme of things, I got to be honest, this podcast seemed like the least of the the important things that we should be doing. But, you know, it's it's my way of giving you guys a distraction and, and distracting myself at the same time because we can get overwhelmed. I think it is needed because, again, people are in their homes. They're not sure. I know California is completely locked down and other states are following us. You know, entire countries in Europe are now closing their borders. And it's really easy to feel just like you're alone. And, you know, we want to remind everybody out there that you're not. Yeah. You know, you are not. Uh, This is a great time to connect with the people in your immediate circle, you know, your your family and those you live with, maybe, you know, uh, your roommate, but it's also a time to connect with family, you know, call your family in another state, you know, set up a Skype call, do something that can connect you guys. And I think, you know, you said that this may not seem important. I would disagree. I think something like this is very important at a time like this. Well, I, I know that we as podcasters are putting our voices out there and hopefully giving you guys some entertainment and something to look forward to. So, you know, that's our small contribution. But I am trying to do something with my little community that I've got. So if you want to help with a small montage that I'm doing, I'm putting together a video Mm -hmm. montage. I already have about seven or eight tapes in. So if you guys want to participate, record yourself horizontally for about 30 seconds dancing to Megan Trainer's Better When I'm Dancing and you can email me that link or video or whatever to Carolina Blue Productions at gmail.com. That's Carolina like the state, blue like the color, and productions as in many. Carolina Blue Productions at gmail.com. And I will be posting that not only on my our Instagram and our Twitter, but also our Facebook page. So I'll give out all the socials at the end like I usually do, but for now Let's take a little distraction. So we're going to be picking up where we left off on our East Coast, West Coast rivalry with Tupac. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used a lot of different resources for this. I've kind of been living with Tupac since about August of last year. And other episodes came up. And then we did the month of Mercury. And, you know, a lot of stuff happened. And then we got into Christmas and then New Year's. And then all of a sudden it's February and now it's March. So... 
here we are. <laughs> and there is so much material on this. You know, I think I would encourage you to look at your own, you know, look, research it on yourself. You have so many books and movies and there's articles galore. There's there's a lot here. There are films. There's biopics. There's YouTube channels. There's other podcasts. I mean, there's a, there's so much because... I remember when you showed me the copy that I looked over and you had a lot of material there. And, and that is, this is not a, a, a knock on you. That only scratches the surface of what's there. There is so much. Oh, yeah, because there's on only the so much we can do in an hour and a half. You know, there's, there's, and then I, I of course, me, because I love a good conspiracy theory, I did add the 10 most recognizable Tupac conspiracy theories at the end of it. That's not even all of them. I know, there's and, so and much. And I boiled it down to like two or three sentences each just so you get the vague idea of what the conspiracy is. But, I mean, it is, there's so much. It's incredible. It really is. Because you not only have to deal with the rivalry, the mysterious death of both of them, both Biggie and Tupac, but uh, there is a, a great podcast that I'm, I'm, I know I've mentioned in the past, but it's uh, called The Last Podcast on the Left. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, Ben Kissel, Henry Zabrowski, and Marcus Parks. And they're insanely popular. I'd be shocked if you guys didn't know who they were. And they did, I think, a two to four part series on the death of Biggie and Tupac. Did so, they really? Yeah. Jeez. We only just took the individuals, but they've done, they did a deep dive. So if you find yourself super interested in this information after this, uh, you can go listen to their podcast because they do a brilliant job. Uh, but their podcast isn't for everybody. I will say that. So let's just jump in, and I'm gonna put the I'm gonna put all of the references that I used into the show notes if you want to dig a little bit deeper into that. So, and there's also a great book just called Tupac, and uh, which we have, don't we? Oh, honey, I have like eight books <laughs> on Tupac. No, I know. I thought we have that one in particular. <laughs> Like like we said, there's so much material there. I mean, this is this is going to hopefully give you a little overview and some grist for the mill, as they say. Uh, but again, there is so much out there on this, and, and there's so much that's left unanswered. It's it's staggering. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So let's jump in, and I, I will tell you guys, both me and Will are sick right now, but uh, I'm gonna try to edit this as little as possible so if you get an extra um or I repeat something I apologize we woke up long enough to record this so yeah we're, we're doing okay though we're doing we're okay. doing okay we're doing we fine. will do this we will get through it we're getting through this so let's start at the very beginning uh Tupac Amaru Shakur was born Lashane Parrish Crooks June 16th 1971 to Black Panther activist parents in East Harlem New York City and he was named after Jose Gabriel Tupac Amaru II, which was an 18th century political leader who in, in Peru who was executed after leading a rebellion against Spanish rule. So that's hmm. like a really cool name. Yeah, it is. Big uh, historical reference. What's that? It's an interesting historical reference, too. Yeah. I, that, I love it when people research names that they're giving their children that's an entire science to itself it's really interesting what's uh, the etymology of your name i've never looked it up uh, <laughs> seriously I, I i need to so that is one thing i will do um i i think it's associated with william the conqueror okay so i i do know that's sort of the origin of it but i don't know what the actual name breaks down to mean so i will have to look that up homework for me mine was a combination of my parents middle names 
so it means nothing. <laughs> but my last name is German for honest hmm. or the truth. The truth, oh. So his parents actually separated before he was born, and his mother, Afini Shakur, whose real name was Alice Faye Williams, was in prison while she was pregnant with him. So she was pregnant in jail. Damn. In April 1968, Afini was arrested with her then-husband, and I'm going to try to pronounce this name, and I apologize if I, I butcher it. I looked up several pronunciations for, for names in this, but there's no through line that people can agree on. So it's Lamuba. It's L-U-M-U-M-B-A, hmm. Shakur, at their apartment in Harlem on the charges of conspiring with other Black Panther members to carry out bombings in New York. With bail set at $100,000 for each of the 21 suspects, the Black Panthers decided to raise money first for Joseph and Shakur so those could work on raising bail money for the others. Shakur had been effective in raising bail funds for other jailed Black Panthers, so that's that was the... That was the reasoning for that. The pretrial started in February 1970 and the actual trial on September 8th, 1970. Charges brought against her and the other members of the Black Panthers were attempted murder, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to bomb buildings, and conspiracy. So conspiracy, conspiracy, and then some more conspiracy. Did any so, of them stick? What's that? Did all the charges stick? Well, she was in prison when he oh. was born, so yeah. Okay. During the course of the trial, the judge dismissed 12 out of the 30 charges. Mm, okay. She actually chose to represent herself in court, pregnant while on trial, and facing a 300-year prison sentence, and she had no law degree. Mm. She interviewed witnesses and argued in court. She and the other Panthers 21 were quitted in May 1971 after an eight-month trial. Altogether, she spent two years in jail before being acquitted. Tupac got acquainted with his biological father, Bill Garland, so that was his bio dad, hmm. only after he became an adult. Interesting. So this is all happening before he's even born. Yeah, and he did not know until he was an adult until his, who his father was, right? Yeah. Wow. That's what I gathered from my research. Yeah. If I'm missing something, please tell me. No, seriously, you guys email me. I, am, I crave any kind of human hmm. interaction right now. Uh, the following year in 1972, Lassane was renamed Tupac which means Shining Serpent in Inca. Hmm. So that's cool. Yeah. His first acting stint was in 1983, and this is why I think I was kind of drawn to Tupac, not to get all East Coast, West Coast, mm -hmm. but uh, Tupac was really a, a student of the arts. Oh, yes, absolutely. So he was an actor. He was a poet. He was a rapper. He, was, he did a ton of stuff, and so I felt a, I felt a kinship to Tupac when I was doing this, so... And what he had is really the soul of an artist. Yeah. At the age of 12, he performed in A Raisin in the Sun with the 127th Street Ensemble. Afini and Tupac actually moved to Baltimore, Maryland, where he entered the prestigious Baltimore School for the Arts as a teenager. While at the school, he began to write raps and poetry. That's what I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. And he performed in Shakespeare plays and took a role in The Nutcracker, which meant he could actually dance. He could do it all. He yeah. could dance. He could sing. He could, I mean, he was a writer. He was super diverse. talented. Yeah. He was actually offered a recording contract at age 13. However, his mother refused to let him sign at such a young age. She felt that he had a lot to learn about the world before joining the music industry. And I kind of, I, I kind of back her up on that. Well, it's interesting because you know what they say a lot about uh, athletes in particular is like, oh, this person is an athlete who chose to play tennis or this person is an athlete who chose to play baseball. 
I feel like you can put Tupac in that same category. He chose to be a rapper. He could have been an actor. He could have been a director. He could have been a writer, you know? Yeah, he he could have been whatever he would have liked to. Exactly. But also, like, there's that trap that people fall into that they think that their talent is going to go away. And so they leave school and join the entertainment industry. But then at that point... That's kind of all you're good for at that point because you don't have those A life skills, but you also don't have like that rich education that you could get by staying in school. And my mom made sure I finished high school before I did any kind of real movement, like going to New York or, you know, performing in other cities and stuff like that. So my mom made sure I got my education first and then pursued that career. But she's always been very supportive of me. So, you know, I I think it's best... Your talent will always be there. Finish school first. <laughs> it's not a well that runs out. Yeah. You know, you can keep doing these things well throughout your life. So many people in Tupac's life were involved with the Black Liberation Army. Some of them were convicted of serious criminal offenses and imprisoned, including his mother, his godfather, uh, and that's Elmer Geronimo Pratt. He was a high-ranking Black Panther, and he had been convicted of murder. He killed a school teacher during a 1968 robbery. Mm. Although his sentence was later overturned, his stepfather, Matulu Shakur, spent four years at large on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. And there are only 10 of those. So, yeah. woof. Beginning in 1982, Matulu was wanted for having helped his friend, no relation, Asada Shakur, who was also known as Joanne, I'm going to butcher this last name, Chesmard. Sorry if I get that wrong. I'm, I apologize. Tupac's godmother to escape from a penitentiary in New Jersey in 1979. So he was wanted because he was helping out his friend to try to escape a penitentiary in New Jersey. Hmm. So that's why he was wanted. Matulu was caught in 1986 and eventually convicted and sentenced to prison for the 1981 robbery of a Brinks armored truck during which two police officers and a guard were killed. In 1986, the family moved from New York to Baltimore, like I said, after completing second year at Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School, Shakur transferred to the Baltimore School for the Arts. And he studied acting, poetry, jazz, and ballet. And like I said, he did the Shakespeare plays. And he actually was the Mouse King in The Nutcracker. Oh, is that so, the role he played? Yeah. Nice. He was accompanied by one of his friends, Dana Mouse Smith at his beatbox, and he won many rap competitions and was considered to be the best rapper in his school. He was remembered as one of the most popular kids in his class because of a sense of humor and superior rapping skills and ability to mix with all crowds. Hmm. So he was just like a good dude, and he was super talented. At everything. I mean, yeah. really all artistic endeavors. Yeah. I would kill to be as creative as he was. I know, right? Uh, Tupac developed a close friendship with someone that we probably all know very well, which is Jada Pinkett, later known as Jada Pinkett Smith, which was Will Smith's wife, that lasted until his death. In the documentary Tupac Resurrection, Shakur says, Jada is my heart. She will always be my friend for my whole life. Pinkett Smith calls him one of my best friends. He was like a brother. It was beyond friendship for us. It was the type of relationship we had you only get once in a lifetime. A poem written by Tupac titled Jada appears in this book. The Rose That Grew From Concrete, which also includes a poem dedicated to Pinkett called The Tears in Cupid's Eyes. So they were really good friends. Hmm. 
and I think some of those poems, there, there were several books published after his death of Justice Poetry, and I think those were among them, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Okay. In June 1988, Shakur and his family moved to Marin City, California, where he joined the Ensemble Theater Company to pursue a career in entertainment. 17-year-old Secure became an avid reader, absorbing books such as J.G. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye. One day, I seriously need to just do an episode on Catcher in the Rye because that comes up a lot. Just the book itself? Just the book itself. Because when John Lennon was murdered, that's what Mark David Chapman sat down and read. That's right. He was yeah, sitting there until the police arrested him, right? Yeah. I think you should do an episode on just the book. <sighs> It'll be like a middle school book report all over again. Oh, no, never mind. I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. Jamaica Kincaid's At the Bottom of the River, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and the feminist writings of Alice Walker and Robin Morgan. So he was learned. There, Shakur took to the streets, selling drugs and becoming involved in gang culture that would one day provide material for his rap lyrics. Although Shakur began recording in 1988, his professional entertainment career did not take off until the early 90s. When he joined... Oh, can I say it? Can yeah, I say it? You can say it. Oh, I love them. The Digital Underground. <laughs> I love The Digital Underground. That's going to sound so strange, but I had their albums. I still to this day know every lyric to the Humpty Dance. I think you should do that. Okay, on, give, on give this me a, give recording? Me a, just give me a little bit of the Humpty Dance. On this right. recording? Yeah, just do it. All right. Okay, here we go. Um, from the beginning? Uh, do it from the beginning. Okay, so this is, I do not have anything in front of me, so he has magician, nothing, nothing up his, my sleeve. So here we go. He has empty right, hands. stop what you're doing, because I'm about to ruin the rhythm and the style that you're used to. I look funny. Yo, I'm, I'm making, making money. money. See, so yo, world, you get ready for me, and I gather round. I'm the new fool in town, and my sound's laid down by the underground. I drink up all the Hennessy you got on your shelf, so just let me introduce myself. My name is Humpty. Humpty. Pronounced with umpty. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, I don't want this to detract from the recording. And, uh, we're, we're supposed to be celebrating Tupac, and uh, I, I feel like that's that's an embarrassing rendition of that song. But I, I do know every lyric, and I have the albums. You can check my collection. This is just the greatest thing ever. Oh, thank you for that. You're, you're welcome. <laughs> so in 1990, he joined the Digital Underground, an Oakland-based rap group that scored a Billboard's Top 40 hit with the novelty song... The Humpty Dance. Dance off the Sex Packets album, which is a great album. <laughs> Still you guys it. don't understand. This is like a different side of my husband I have not seen. We've been married for like 10, 10 years. All, all, all of them. All of them. Yeah. Well, it's, but no, we've been married for nine. Yes, married for nine. But yes. we've been together for 30. I don't know. But this is the first time I've really seen him <laughs> do this. Yeah, we've been married since we were 10. <laughs> so, so I mentioned earlier that uh, there's some homework. Yes, one of them is listen to the Sex Packets album. You will not be disappointed. Take it from him. So his, <laughs> after the Humpty Dance, Tupac's professional career actually began in 1991 with the hit single, Same Song. Later that year, he appeared in the Sons of the P, the first of eight films Shakur performed on two digital underground albums. This EP release and the Sons of P, before his uh, solo debut, Tupacalypse, now, later that year, Tupacalypse Now was a radical break from the dance party sound of the digital underground. So he's moving, he's switching tones. And the content was much closer to the works of Public Enemies and the West Coast gangster rappers NWA. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned the late Kenny Rogers as well. Yeah. And when people say, you know, people would ask Kenny Rogers, 
you know, oh, what's this album like? What's that album like? He said, well, it's pretty much a snapshot of who I am at that time. And this is a perfect example of that. You can see the progression of Tupac's career almost biographically. Oh, yeah. You know, where he was at that point when he was with the Digital Underground doing all around the world and kind of like, again, that that party kind of rap moves into a very different direction. Yeah. Yeah. And you got to remember, we're only a year away, I think, yeah, from the L.A. riots. So it's Mm -hmm. actually a really rough time to be in California. And they're changing tones completely within the rap community. It's not like that party atmosphere of like Big D and, you know, the digital underground. It's becoming a much more darker and much more angrier. I think it's much more expressionistic. Yeah. Well, they have they're taking the idea of they have a voice and they're putting their message into their music. So, you know, for him to grow, that's huge. Yeah, and I remember uh, when, I know they talk about this in uh, the film Straight Outta Compton, Easy e when he's writing, is really biographical. Yeah. Those we, lyrics are from real life. We will be doing an episode on Easy e uh, eventually. Hmm. We're getting there. Okay, sorry, I jumped the gun there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. it's totally fine. Uh, but yeah, if you actually haven't seen Straight Outta Compton, it's a really good film. I was genuinely surprised. It was actually my favorite of the films. What was that, three years ago? Three was or four years three? ago? I can't remember. Yeah, that was one of my favorite films from that year because it was really well done. It was really well acted, well written. You know, it was a cohesive story. And yeah, again, like Bohemian Rhapsody, they did, you know, switch things around. But it was for the betterment of the story. So if you haven't checked it out, I I suggest if you're in quarantine, now's the time. The lack of a clear single on the album limited its radio appeal, but it did sell well, especially Vice President Dan Quayle's criticizing the song A Soldier's Story during the 1992 presidential campaign. And that's when you know you've made it when a public figure calls you out. Yep, you've arrived. I'm waiting for that. Come on, Gavin Newsom, get angry at me. I think he's got other things on his mind right now. But what? Uh, hey, if you listen to this podcast, you know, <laughs> drop us a line, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Yeah, we've got ideas. Uh, he, he released his second album, Strictly For My, and I'm not going to say the word. I'm sorry, I just don't feel comfortable with that word. Uh, the album does not stray far from the activist lyricism of his debut, but singles such as Holla If You Hear Me and Keep Your Head Up made it much more radio friendly. And I love both of those songs. And you know what? I'm going to exercise my ability to play music now. Ooh. Something for my godson Elijah and little girl named Corinne. Some say the black of the bed. Since a man can't make one, he has no right to tell a woman when and where 
song it's and it's one. very pro-feminist yeah extremely and i love for the hook that they use the five stair steps ooh child i love that song mm. that one jimmy cliffs i can see clearly now those are my two go-to optimistic songs <laughs> so yeah and you can see how those are more radio friendly um especially for the rap at the time uh now Tupacalypse Now generated significant controversy for numerous reasons. The song Trapped and Brenda's Got a Baby were both widely noted for their poetic qualities and their strong critiques of an unjust society. Dan Quell criticized the album after Texas Youth defense attorney claimed that he was influenced by Tupacalypse Now and its themes of police brutality before shooting a state trooper. Quell said there's no reason for a record like this to be released. It has no place in our society. I disagree. Yeah, that, yeah, because that's authority on rap is Dan Quayle. And and number one, number one, we have the First Amendment. And number two, you can choose not to listen to it. And number three, if you're young and listening to it, someone should be monitoring you. Like, I'm sorry. It's it, it. And this, you know, you can be mad at me if you want to. I'm sorry. This is my opinion. But I feel like people who blame movies, TV, video games, and music need to be a parent because if you don't want your child to be exposed to this stuff, mm. then don't allow them to be exposed to this stuff. Be present for them. Exactly. Yeah. And I'll probably get some angry letters about it, but you know, that's that's my opinion. I feel like art and artists should be allowed to express themselves. And if you disagree with it, don't give in to it. Don't you can change the channel, change the dial. Yeah, I mean, the other side of that is what I was mentioning before. It is expressionistic. It is a a biographical view of what was going on, you know? It's not a fictional story. Yeah, and our son Eli, we knew when he reached a certain age where he could be exposed to certain things. Like, I remember sitting down when he was 12 and watching Ghostbusters and having to... Oh, that was an adventure. <laughs> and having to distract him during the... Dan Aykroyd scene where he's having the dream about the ghost and I was like hey Eli look over here we're going to the zoo tomorrow yeah, it's gonna be great shiny. and then your mom just gave me like that nod like good job <laughs> but you know he's almost 20 and he's now an, you know he's an adult now he can choose what he, to listen to but there were certain times in his life where like oh we don't think that you should play this game we don't think you should see this movie because we knew that it had elements that we didn't approve of him having knowledge of. So after the quote from Quayle, Secure stated that he felt like he had been misunderstood. He said, I started out saying I was down for the young black male, you know, and that was going to be my thing. Tupac said, 
I just wanted to rap about things that affected young black males. When I said that, I didn't know that I was going to tie myself down to just take all the blunts and hits for all the young males to be in the media's kicking post for young black males. Mm -hmm. I just figured since I lived that life, I could do it. I could rap about that. So basically what he's saying was when he started out, when he started out, he didn't know the impact he was going to have. Right. And he didn't know that he was going to be kind of the unofficial spokesperson for the African-American community. But he just wanted to get his own message out. And maybe he didn't even realize that other people felt the same way he did. Well, I believe it's uh, Thoreau or, or Emerson. I know I'm going to mess this up. It's one of those two, though, that said to know that what is true in your heart is true for all. That is genius. Well, I ain't pulling out some special quotes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's reflective of that. He was speaking from his heart. Yeah. You know, the things that mattered to him, what he was experiencing, what life was like as a young black man. And he told that story and it resonated with a lot of people. And apparently it reached Dan Quayle. And Dan Quayle, yeah. The man who apparently couldn't spell the word potatoes. He tried. And, and we have spell check, <laughs> so I don't really know what his excuse is. So anyway. Well, he didn't have spell check in the 80s. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Not like we do now. The record was important in showcasing Tupac's political conviction and his focus on his lyrical prowess. On MTV's Greatest Rappers of All Time list, Tupacalypse now listed as one of Tupac's certified classic albums, along with Me Against the World, All Eyes on Me. Such a good album. Yeah, that's a good one. And the Don Killuminati, The Seven Day Theory, which we will get into that one. Tupacalypse now went on to be certified gold by the RIAA. It featured three singles, Brenda Got a Baby, Trapped, and If My Homie Calls. He also appeared in what would be the first of many films... <laughs> <laughs> which is the Dan Aykroyd directed Nothing But Trouble. I can't even say now, that with a Now we face. know, I guess, <laughs> which, which yes, the Digital Underground had an appearance in. They were the band on the bus for anyone who's seen it. Uh, it is widely considered one of the worst films ever made. I know I already brought them up, but last podcast on the left had a, had a goal to try to get more people to watch Nothing But Trouble. And then go on Rotten Tomatoes and score it. And they actually drove the score down. <laughs> I think it's only said like 8% on Rotten Tomatoes now. <laughs> well, uh, another quote that I won't quote directly. It's not Emerson. It's not throw. You can't make chicken salad out of chicken something else that starts with an S. I'll leave it at that. Poop. Yes, that one. That's not S, but okay. Words. <laughs> the movie The movie is awful. It, it is downright dreadful. I am not going to watch it, even though I love Dan Aykroyd. I feel like Dan Aykroyd and the girl who wants to live in the bacon house are my spirit animals. And the amazing thing is everybody's in this movie. It's Demi Moore, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd. I mean, it should have been, by all accounts, a good movie. And the Digital well, Underground appeared really at the height of their popularity. It doesn't matter about the, the cast. Like, seriously, we uh, an American Haunting had Sissy Spacek and Donald Sutherland, and it was terrible yeah, it was bonfires of the vanity pile of hot garbage yeah yeah there's nothing you tupac couldn't save this film we love you dan Aykroyd. in 1992 he appeared in juice where four inner city teenagers get caught up in the pursuit of power and happiness which they refer to as the juice daryl mitchell donald Faison, who i love donald Faison, especially in scrubs and clueless like He's mm -hmm. a great actor. Uh, Anthony Treach Chris and Money B were amongst the people who auditioned for the role of Bishop. Tupac was accompanied by Treach to the audition and asked to read. He nailed the role when mm -hmm. he threw a chair during his audition. 
Shakir helped Chris get a cameo as one of the members of the Ramadan's gang. And I don't know if most of you guys know what my job is, but I do a, I'm a casting producer. And I was reading a role for a pilot. And in the script, it said, so-and-so throws a chair. And we ended up, as the production company, having to pay for repairs to the wall because so many people picked up the metal chairs that we had in the audition room and threw them against the wall. So kids, if you're out there dreaming of Hollywood stardom, here's a pro tip from a casting producer. (laughs) Don't do that. Do not throw, don't spit, don't throw chairs, don't pour water on anyone. (laughs) Just don't do it. So I I think you can go two routes this way if you're hosting an audition like that. One is inflatable furniture. (laughs) Fair. The other is a very oversized, cumbersome beanbag chair that would be impossible to throw and just watch actors kind of struggle with it. Oh, yeah. No, there was a a point where I actually had to go out into the audition room and be like, hey, guys, hi. Uh, Real quick, if you're auditioning for the role of ba-ba-ba, please don't touch the chairs. Okay? Thanks. Do not throw the chair. (laughs) Just because it says it in the script. Uh, In 1992, after a performance in Marin City, a confrontation occurred, and Shakur, he pulled on his registered Colt Mustang gun and then allegedly dropped it. When a member of his entourage picked up the gun, a bullet discharged, and the stray bullet killed six-year-old Kwali Walker Teal. Shakur and his stepbrother, Maurice Harding, were arrested, but the charges were later dismissed. It was reported that he agreed to pay a three hundred dollars to $500,000 settlement to the parents. So that was was really sad. Yeah. You know, and, and that was a complete accident, and I can't imagine how he felt after that. So, uh, in 1993, he actually had several run-ins with the law. Uh, he spent 10 days in a Michigan prison for beating up another rapper with a baseball bat, and that was uh, in April. And in October, on Halloween night, he allegedly stopped to help a black motorist who felt like he was being harassed by a policeman. A fight broke out, and Tupac shot one of the policemen in the leg and the other in the buttocks. When it was determined that the policemen were intoxicated and carrying guns taken from the evidence room, the charges were dropped. Let's just hold on that thought for just one second. Yeah, can we break that down for a minute? So Tupac is driving. He sees a guy on the sidewalk being harassed by police officers. And so he pulls over and it comes out on Halloween night that the two policemen were not only drunk, but they had guns from an evidence room. There's a whole lot of bad right there. There is a whole lot of bad going on right there. I get whoopsie (laughs) charges dropped. And that's the whole tirade that we went on about. The corruption of police. Well, they're lucky he didn't try to counter sue. I mean, he could have gone after the police department. Well, he did shoot them. Well, no, I mean, once that was all dismissed and they determined, I mean, these police are endangering the lives of the public. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, that happened. About 18 days later, he was arrested on the sexual abuse and sodomy charges and weapon charges in New York City. The sodomy and weapons charges were dropped. Uh, Shakira was sentenced to... One and a half to four and a half years of prison for which he served nine months beginning February 14th, uh, 1995 at the Clinton Correctional Facility. So he went into prison on Valentine's Day. In 1993, Tupac formed the group Thug Life with a few of his friends and his stepbrother. The group released their only album, Thug Life, Thug Life Volume 1 on September 26, 1994. Almost my birthday. Mm. Three days away. Early present. 
And it was the day after, well, everybody's like born on September 25th. There's like is that a big day? Su- September 25th is a super big day for births. I don't know. I have like eight friends that were born on that specific day. On November 10th, 1994, Tubac was actually slated to star in the movie Menace to Society. Actually punched the director, Alan Hughes. And for that, he spent 15 days in prison and was replaced in the movie by Lorenz Tate. He did land the role of Lucky in Poetic Justice against Janet Jackson. And Poetic Justice, when we were growing up, that was huge. I never saw that one. I... I think it was one of my sick day movies. Mm. You know, I was sick at f- from I was sick from school one day, and it was on. So well, every day is a sick day for a while now. <laughs> yep, but yeah, that poetic justice I would say is probably poetic justice and above the rim are probably the two biggest movies that I would say Tupac did. But I'll get to above the rim in just a second. So uh, lucky in poetic justice, and in 1994, he actually read for the role of Bubba in Forrest Gump, but that role went to McKelty Williamson. And honestly, I couldn't see anybody else in that role because he was just so perfect, McKelty was. Yeah, it's hard to envision Tupac in that performance. And I think he was so good at it. He he had a hard time getting other work because people actually thought that his lip stuck out like that. But it wasn't. It was like he a was prosthetic. too good, yeah. He was too good at his job. Uh, he was offered the role in Birdie in the movie Above the Rim, which is the story of a promising high school basketball star and his relationship with two brothers one a drug dealer, and the other a former basketball star fallen on hard times, now employed as a security guard. So this is, I'm going to hop into this because this, I don't actually in this episode talk a whole heck of a lot about Tupac's music. I know I touched on some of his albums and particular songs, but his life story is so incredibly interesting. Even without the music, it's He's an interesting character, like he's an interesting person. So um, I want to kind of read this article from the Washington Post from November 30th, 1994. And this is the story of what happened to him on that day. I'm almost going to read this article verbatim because it was so well written that I'm just going to, I couldn't have, I couldn't have put it into better terms. Rapper Tupac Shakur, the best-selling musician and film star who has been arrested three times on weapon charges and convicted twice of assault, who is currently awaiting jury verdicts in Manhattan's sexual abuse trial, was shot five times this morning in Times Square by three unidentified assailants. Tupac underwent security at Manhattan's Bellevue Hospital for injuries to his groin. Police say three men fled on foot after making off with $45,000 in jewelry, including a diamond ring and several large gold chains. They have no suspects in the case. The incident happened at 12.30 this morning, just hours after the jury adjourned, following its first day of deliberation in Shakur's latest criminal trial. This one involving allegations by a New York City woman stating that Tupac engaged in the deviant sexual intercourse and sexual contact by forcible compulsion in her Manhattan hotel a year ago. The jury, which was unaware of the shooting, deliberated all day without reaching a verdict, and by early evening, Shakur had checked himself out of the hospital against doctor's orders. The Times Square shooting took place early this morning as Shakur and three others entered the lobby of the Quad Recording Studio on 8th Avenue. According to police, he and his friends were buzzed into the lobby. Two men followed them through the open door and then together with a third man that was already in the building, pulled out guns and yelled, give it up. Shakur, according to police, exchanged words with one of the gunmen, refusing to lie down on the floor and then lunged at one of the assailants. In the ensuing struggle, Shakur was shot five times in the head, the hand, and most seriously, the groin, where he 
suffered internal bleeding. His manager, 24-year-old Freddie Moore, was shot in the abdomen and is listed in stable condition at St. Vincent's Hospital. Moore chased the robbers down the street before giving up. Shakira and two other companions carried him upstairs into the recording studio where they called the police. And I'm going to interrupt my own self in this, stating that when he got upstairs, you know who was waiting for him? Go ahead. Biggie. Yep, he was there. Biggie was there. So that's where a lot of controversy comes from, was the fact that they were like, and people say like, Biggie had no idea, but but this is one of those things that is just so weird and frustrating. And yeah, th- this is the point where, again, things kind of turn into the Twilight Zone. I mean, Times Square, you can't move 10 feet. You're telling me that three men with jewelry fired guns ran out of Times square and nobody saw anything uh, that's and there's uh, no security cameras and oh yeah you have to be buzzed into the lobby and, and somebody studio isn't yeah, it and it's somebody yeah. that was waiting there already yeah i mean the fact that the gunman pursued him to the lobby of that studio is in my opinion highly suspect so earlier that evening tupac had been invited by ron g who was a dj in new york to record with him and he actually agreed to do the recording for free as a favor to the young rapper whom he wanted to help out. Uh, based on the statements made to police by witnesses to the shooting, it went down like this. After finishing taping the session, Tupac was paged, oh my God, that's so 90s, mm-hmm. <laughs> by a rapper named Booker who asked him to tape a song with Lil Sean, an East Coast rapper. Tupac told him that he'd do it for the day for $7,000, and Booker ap- agreed on the price. And the recording was supposed to take place at the Quad Studio, so that's how he ended up there. While heading out to the studio, Tupac got a second call from Booker asking why he was taking so long, and then a third call saying that they didn't have the money to pay him. Tupac told Booker that he wouldn't record unless he was paid and hung up. Finally, he got a fourth call telling him that Uptown Entertainment would be taking care of the fee, which would be waiting for him when he finished the recording, and that's when he headed to the studio. So nine minutes later, Tupac and his group arrived in front of the studio, a police report said, standing on the small terrace overlooking 48th Street for a smoke break, and there were a couple teenage members of the Junior Mafia, a group that Biggie Smalls was sponsoring. And they hollered down to Tupac to say hello, and then they went back inside to tell everybody that Tupac was there. And upstairs, it was a party atmosphere that night, and word spread that Tupac would be recording there. People were excited in anticipation of the popular rapper's arrival. Also there to record, but on a different floor from where Tupac was scheduled to record, were Biggie Smalls and Puffy Combs. They were working on Biggie's warning video, and at the time, Quad had recording studios and equipment on five different floors. So this is like a big, big recording studio. There's a lot going on in there. Yeah. It seemed like everybody who was awesome was there. Pretty much. (laughs) Like Junior Mafia, Biggie, Puffy... Tupac. Jeez. So that's how he actually ended up at the Quad Studios and Biggie and Sean were there. So that's where a lot of the Biggie had something to do with it conspiracy theories Mm -hmm. come in. But I mean, because Tupac and Biggie had been friends up till this point. And that's what sparked the whole East Coast, West Coast thing. So getting back to my first personal interruption, (laughs) because I am super organized. When he hit the intercom button, he felt like it was a setup. He said, my instincts tell me that this looks like a setup, it smells like a setup, and it feels like a setup. Shakira's attorney, Michael Warren, told reports in front of the state Supreme Court in Manhattan today, and that's when this article was released. According to the Associated Press, police source who asked not to be identified said that Tupac told the police that he believed the assailants knew him and were after him. 
However, the police said that they were treating this like just another Times Square mugging, and it did not appear that the bandits knew who were they were assaulting. Seriously? Yeah, c- come on, guys. Really? Are you kidding me? Ugh. Anybody who was going into the building this time was going to get robbed. Really? Said Assistant Police Chief John Hill. Okay, do better, John Hill. Especially because of the reputation Biggie had, the risk of stealing from him would be pretty high. I mean... The the the, the reputation Tupac had. Exactly, Biggie had. Yeah. You don't walk into a recording studio thinking you're going to get mugged. No, exactly. When the police came to investigate the shooting, they found three bags of marijuana and a 9mm clip with 15 rounds of ammunition in Tupac's jacket pocket. The police said that it was because Shakir wasn't wearing the jacket at the time, he would not be charged. Well, that's good. We all have the right to bear arms, Shakira said Tuesday when he left the courthouse. Just because I'm black doesn't mean I can't carry a gun. The amount of times that he was actually shot has always been up for debate, which this is so frustrating. Did they I say fe- five in the New York Times? They said five in the New York Times, but they said that it was, uh, and someone else said that it was only one gunshot wound that some people say it was self-inflicted. Entering the courthouse in a wheelchair, he was sentenced to 15 days in jail with an additional day's on a highway working crew and community service, and a $2,000 fine. In April 1996, he served 120 days in jail for violating terms of probation. So, and I think during this whole thing was when, I believe it was Suge Knight, called out Puffy on the Source Awards, which only added fuel to the East Coast, West Coast fire. But Tupac actually wasn't there that night because he was in the hospital. So, jumping forward in time... A man has admitted to the non-fatal 1994 shooting of Tupac Shakur, claiming that he was paid $2,500 to rob the rapper at the Quad Studio. Dexter Isaac is currently serving a life sentence on unrelated charges, said that he was hired by hip-hop manager Jimmy Hinchman Roseman to ambush and mug Shakur. That's a, that's a, that's a heck of a nickname. Jimmy Hinchman? Hinchman. To ambush and mug Tupac, setting off three years of reprisal that left Tupac and Biggie dead. So this shooting had greater implications because who was there that night, where the information came from, it could have been random, it could have been a setup, it could it could have been anything. And this is where it gets really frustrating and really muddled because, A, the police didn't care. The police work was super shoddy. The police super work, shoddy. like, from, begin- from 1994 to now... It's just super shoddy. Jimmy, I say to you, I have kept your secret for years, Isaacs told all hip-hop. I have stayed silent in prison for the, the past 13 years doing a life sentence like a real soldier should when you and everybody turn your backs on me. I would like to clear up a few things because the statute of limitations is over and no one can be charged and I'm just plain tired of listening to your lies. In 1994, James Roseman hired me to rob Tupac at the Quad Studio. He gave me $2,500 plus all the jewelry I took except for one ring which he wanted for himself. Isaac has spent the past decade behind bars, serving time on a 1998 indictment for murder, robbery, fraud, and witness intimidation. He and Roseman have been long linked with Secure's robbery, though neither man was ever charged. In 2008, the LA Times published and later retracted, and again, that's another frustrating thing, is there are so many claims and retractments done by all the different papers out there. that again, it's like that fake news kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then they constantly have to go back and go, no, And then it became like a pissing contest between papers. It's just so frustrating. 
So, like I said, the L.A. Times published and later retracted an article contending that Roseman and other associates of Sean Combs, a.k.a. Diddy, a.k.a. Puff Daddy, a.k.a. Puffy, a.k.a. Please Stop Changing Your Name. So it all goes up to, pu- to Puff Daddy, basically. It, it, it's without, the old follow without, the money and well, see where it goes. Well, without speculation, it comes down to two men. One I'll introduce in just a little bit, but Puffy is definitely one of them because he had bad boys. That is true. So it was that Sean P. Diddy Combs, with all his 14 names, arranged the attack as payback for Secure's rejection of Combo's record label. The L.A. Times ultimately admitted that their allegations were based on fabricated FBI reports, but Tupac himself had made these claims before his death. Promised to pay back Jimmy Henchman in due time, he rapped on against all odds. I heard the guns bust, but your tricks never shut me up. All-out warfare, eye for an eye. And I think that that is the perfect time for a small ad break. I'm going to do this in my sexy rock and roll voice. Because free stuff is awesome. But free stuff to spice up your bedroom is even better. Adam and Eve is here for you. Select almost any one item for 50% off, and then Adam and Eve loads on the free stuff. Enter offer code RRHEAVEN at checkout and get 10 free tantalizing gifts. A sexy item for him, a special gift for her, and a third item you'll both enjoy. Plus six free spicy movies and free shipping. Seriously, what could be sexier? That's code RRHEAVEN at adamandeve.com. Okay, and we're back. Okay. With increased fame and success came greater scrutiny of Tupac's gangsta lifestyle. He was incarcerated when his third album, Me Against the World, was released in 1995. Dear Mama, which I... I love that song. You know what? Let's let's just play a little bit of Dear Mama, because that's... That's such a good song, and I'm so sorry. Our cat's yelling. Yeah, she wants to help us out in the studio. When I was young, me and my mama had beef. Seventeen years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Shed tears with my baby sister. Over the years, we was poor and other little kids. And even though we had different daddies, the same drama when things went wrong, we blame mama. I reminisce on the stress I caused. It was hell, hugging on my mama from a jail cell. And who thinking elementary? Hey, I see the penitentiary one day. Running from the police, that's right. Mama catch me, put a whoop into my backside. And even as a crack fiend, mama, you always was a black queen, mama. Finally understand for a woman it ain't easy trying to raise a man. You always was committed. A poor single mother on welfare. Tell me how you did it. There's no way I can pay you back. But the plan is to show you that I understand. You all appreciate it. Don't you know that love is sweet? Dear mama. Please no one above you. You all appreciate it. Nobody tell us it was fair. No love for my daddy, cause the coward wasn't there. He passed away and I didn't cry. Cause my anger wouldn't let me feel for a stranger. They say I'm wrong and I'm heartless. But all along I was looking for a 
so that was Dear Mama, and that was released as the album's first single in February of 1995, along with the track Old School as a B-side. And it would become the album's most successful single, and it was certified platinum in July 1995. And he later placed it 51 on the year-end charts. That's pretty big. Like, that's that's decent numbers. That's a big deal, yeah. Especially for rap, which is kind of almost overlooked on the Hot 100, so that's a really big deal. The second single, So Many Tears, was released in June, four months after the first single, would reach the number six on the Hot Rap Singles Charts and 44 on the Billboard Hot 100s. Temptation was released in August, and that was the third and final single from the album, and it would be the least successful of the three released, but it actually still did pretty good on the charts, reaching number 68 on the Hot 100 and 35 on the Hot R&B Hip Hop Singles Tracks. And for some reason... <laughs> <laughs> This song is not mentioned in any of my notes, but I got to tell you, this is my favorite Tupac song. And call me cliche, but it is so hot. And like Busta was in it. Dr. Dre was in it. Like it was such a good collab. So right now I'm going to hit you with my favorite Tupac song, which is California Love. that went on for longer than we usually play but with, with everything going on hearing that song almost has a different meaning now yeah also california love my favorite palette from color pop <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that video is so like the music video for that is so good because they took the thunderdome vibe from like the mad max movies mm-hmm. and the you desert. had them like doing like the desert racing and stuff all oh, is so good but I don't have it in my notes, so I'm just going off the cuff here. And I, ugh, that is such a good song. And I, I know all the words to it. And I, oh, I just love it. Sorry. <laughs> if anything, this like safer at home has made me appreciate the small things. And I realize, you know, you got to find joy in what you can find. And I love that song so much. So I'm just going to spill it out. There you go. <laughs> 
Tupac was paroled after serving eight months in prison, and then he signed with Suge Knight's Death Row Records for his next release. That album was called All Eyes on Me, and that that album was massive when I was growing up. Commercially successful, I think, wasn't it? I, I know every single person in my graduating class, which was actually only 30 people, <laughs> so it's not that many, I think had that album. So, uh, And that was actually a two-disc album. And it debuted at number one on the Billboard charts and sold more than five million copies within its first year in releases. So, to your point, yes, it was extremely successful. Quick to capitalize on this most recent success, Shakira Word returned to Hollywood where he starred in Bullet. And that was the year 1996. And he also starred in Gridlocked in 1997. He married his longtime girlfriend, Keisha Morris, in April 1995, but the marriage ended in March 1996. Tupac and Keisha first met at Capitol Nightclub in New York City in the summer of 1994, where she was studying criminal justice at John Jay College. I actually knew my roommate when I was living in New York City actually went to John Jay. And she was also working as a camp counselor, and she was 20 when Tupac was 21. And she sounds like she got her stuff together. Oh, yeah, she's absolutely. We were dancing, and we spoke briefly. He was going through something legally at the time, and I just told him to be careful of the people that he was around, and I hoped that everything would work out. Uh, and this was in a an interview with XXL Magazine in 2011. I saw him a month later at the Tunnel, which was another nightclub, mm. and he remembered the whole conversation. He had told that he'd been looking for me for a month, going to every club. He tried to invite me back to his hotel room, and I was like, no, that's not happening. <laughs> and he gave me his number, and I gave him my house number, and we started talking from that day on. Mm. Oh, man, the tunnel. I Where was the tunnel? I can't remember. I remember where the limelight was, and I know Webster Hall. But I vaguely, I want to say that the tunnel was actually opened up. It was still open in 2001 when I moved to New York. Was it really? I think so. Let me look. Yeah, so we looked it up, and the tunnel was a nightclub in New York City located on 12th Avenue in the Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan, and it operated from 1986 to 2001, so it was actually opened up when I moved there. At that time, yeah. Yeah, but I don't I don't think I ever went. I, I remember going to Limelight, and I remember going to Webster Hall. I don't ever remember leaving Webster Hall, <laughs> but I remember going. <laughs> you did something right. <laughs> uh, despite the fact that Tupac was facing legal charges at the time for a previous sexual abuse incident, Keisha got to know him, and the two struck up a romance. Tupac ended up proposing, and after they got married, Tupac was in jail on April 29, 1995. For him, it was more like, I don't want you saying you're my girlfriend. I want people to take you seriously and then let them know you're my wife, Keisha Mm. recalled. On October 1995, Tupac was released from prison, and their marriage was actually annulled five months later. Things were getting very different once he got bail, and I felt like I wasn't needed anymore, she said about their breakup. It wasn't a good feeling. Okay, of course you don't know from being so young, but I felt like, wow, okay, it's over. Like, okay, I don't I don't need you anymore. I'm getting out. That's it. Akeisha and Tupac remained friends up until his tragic death. Tupac was the type of person that if he was through with you, that was it. But it wasn't the case with me. We were still friends up until that day. In fact, Keisha was actually with Tupac in New York City the day before he was killed. How crazy is that? Before he went to Vegas? Yeah. So the day he he was in New York, then he went to Vegas. So she saw him the day before. Wow. And it's it's really, no one's taking the time to say this, but like it's really interesting that there was this East Coast, West Coast thing where Tupac was considered West Coast. Well, he really, his musical career sort of blossomed in California. I mean, yeah, in Marin County. But he, he went, he was in New York, yeah. But he's but been he's a, a New long, York guy, yeah. And Baltimore. Yeah. 
very East Coast. I mean, both of those are very East Coast. It's just interesting that they were considered affiliated with a, cer- a particular coast. Okay, so I've already said his name once before, but I want to introduce somebody into this episode, and I got to say I am a little scared because of who it is. Born Marion Suge Knight in 1965, and growing up in Compton, he was always determined to make it out of his parents' two-bedroom house. He was an American record producer, music executive, and former football player. Knight went undrafted in the 1987 NFL draft, was invited to the Los Angeles Rams training camp. He was cut by the Rams during camp, but he became a replacement player during the 1987 NFL players' strike. So that kind of made him a scab, right? I think the players looked down on him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And he played for two games for the Rams, and he's also a convicted felon. He is best known as the co-founder and former CEO of Death Row Records, which rose to dominate the rap charts after Dre's breakthrough album, The Chronic, in 1992. Agreed. The Chronic is fantastic. So didn't Dre have a falling out with Suge Knight and he broke away from that record label? I don't know when it actually happened, but I know Dre is affiliated with Aftermath Records. So I'm not sure what that timeline is, but I'm sure we could look it up. Oh, yes. With the the magic of the internet, we can do these things. Aftermath was founded in 1996, and the people on that album are like 50 Cent, Buster Rhymes, The Game, Eve. Oh, Kendrick Lamar is on the album. Oh, wow. So they've got a lot of notable people. Sure, yeah. Yeah, but again, I I don't know about the whole Suge Knight, Dr. Dre thing. I didn't look it up, but I'm one singular Got it, yeah. And that's more into uh, to straight, the Straight out of Compton storyline when they do that. Yeah. So Dr. Dre released The Chronic in 92, and it enjoyed several years of chart success for artists, including Tupac Dre, Snoop Dogg, Outlaws, and The Dog Pound. Dude, we haven't even touched on Snoop Dogg. Nope. <laughs> that, that's uh, so much yeah. to cover there. That is like my yeah. childhood. Not even kidding. Like I grew up listening to uh, the Dog Pound, to to Snoop Dogg, to Dr. Dre, to Busta Rhymes, to Tupac. Like that was. I know it sounds so weird for me this to come out of my mouth. I was listening to Broadway musicals and gangster rap. So <laughs> as soon as I was old enough, I told myself that I would never live or end up dying in a place like that. So that's what he was talking about. Um, his parents' mm. house. In The Guardian 2001, I made up my mind that I wanted everything and nothing would stop me. Knight showed incredible promise as an American football player, but after a short-lived career at the University of Nevada, he actually turned his attention to music. I mean, he was incredibly successful. He was a great producer. He was a great executive. I mean, he he helped launch the career of some of the best hip-hop artists that we've ever had. Unmistakable. He started out... (laughs) This is, here are some crazy things. I'm about to dump a whole lot of crazy on your lap about Suge Knight, which was he actually started out working as a bodyguard for Bobby Brown. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, like Whitney Houston's husband, Bobby Brown. He was a security guard. Moving in the same circles as some of hip-hop's finest, including Dr. Dre and Ice Cube. In 1989, he formed a publishing company, and I'm sure we all know this story about how he allegedly threatened to push rapper Vanilla Ice over a balcony. Was that alleged? I mean... I mean, I don't know. There have yeah. been a couple different stories. Some say that he threatened to push him. Some say they did that thing where, like, they dangled him over the balcony. Like, nobody knows. They weren't... You weren't in the room where it happened. No, I so, wasn't. <laughs> so, we just got to take the artist for what they're saying. And that was actually over the royalties to Ice's hit song, Ice Ice Baby. Mm. In 1991, he co-founded Death Row Records with Dre, who had set his sights on leaving NWA uh, recording label. 
ruthless. So this is the beginning of that that we were just talking about. The label released the triple platinum album Dr. Dre's The Chronic and signed Snoop Dogg, releasing his career-defining album Doggy Style in 93. Oh, my God. That's so good. Another iconic album, yeah. Gin and Juice. Mm-hmm. Iconic. I have never, full disclosure, never smoked weed. Love Snoop Dogg. <laughs> you, can, you can do that. They're not mutually exclusive. They kind of are. Well, <laughs> <laughs> In 1995, Knight signed Tupac to Death Row Records. Just prior, Knight had paid Tupac's $1.4 million bail after he was jailed for sexual assault charges. So he was the one that actually came in and bailed out Tupac. Mm. Things started to sour between Dre and Knight when Tupac was signed, with Tupac becoming the commercial focus of the lead. So, of course, like, Dre felt like he was being pushed to the back once Tupac stepped in. In 1996, Dre split with Knight to form his own record label, Aftermath. We talked about that before as well. Knight went on to have a feud with East Coast record label Bad Boy, run by Sean Puffy Combs. In a battle over territory and musical supremacy, Suge is a major player in Tupac's life and death. So that was the beef. And then so that they, you have these two powerhouse executives fighting it over. And this is what we were talking about before. I felt like the fight was between Suge and Sean. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Tupac and Biggie were just kind of the figureheads that got pulled down in all this. The album All Eyes on Me was released in 1996, was the last one released during his lifetime. It featured five singles, went multi-platinum just months after it was released, and that is a really big thing. Yeah, no, that's huge. It featured hits How Do You Want It and California Love, which we've already covered. (laughs) (laughs) All Eyes on Me was the second album for Tupac to hit number one on both Billboard to Hot 200 and the top R&B hip-hop album charts. It sold 566,000 copies in its first week. That's insane. (laughs) That is nuts. Oh, my God. By the end of 1996, the album had sold 5 million copies and won the 1997 Soul Train R&B Soul or Rap Album of the Year. Shakur won the award for Favorite Rap Artist at the 24th Annual American Music Awards. The Don Caluminati, the seven-day theory, commonly shorted to the seven-day theory, is Tupac's fifth and final studio album released under the news stage name Machiavelli. And because he changed his name to Machiavelli, there are more conspiracy theories. I completely forgot about the name change. Yeah. totally missed that. Yep. The album was completely finished in a total of seven days, which is ridiculous. During the month of August 1996, the lyrics were written and recorded in three days, and the mixing took an additional four days. So it was complete in seven days. Done. The time on that is insane. In 2005, MTV.com ranked The Seven Day Theory at number nine on their greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Wow. And in 2006, recognized it as a classic. Of course it is. Have you heard it? I think they made it in weeks. Just insane. Well, it's like, I'm, you know, what still blows my mind is the movies Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Cabin in the Woods right. were done in like three days. Yeah. So when you're a genius, time doesn't exist. 
George Papa G. Price, former head of publicity for Death Row, claims that Machiavelli, which we did was sort of a tongue-in-cheek and was not really to come out after Tupac was murdered. It did come out, but before that, it was going to be sort of an underground album. So they didn't actually intend on it to be a true release. It was supposed to be more like one of the albums you could buy just buy on the street. And yet it was huge. <laughs> yeah, but you have an artist that passes away, and all of a sudden... I'm sure their stock's going to go up. Yeah. The seven-day theory generated the second highest debut week sales of any album that year, and it was certified four times platinum on June 15, 1999. Okay, so I'm going to place a parental warning on what I'm going to play in just a few minutes. I'm giving you time. I'll give you another warning before I do it. But the idea of diss tracks has never been been quite as strong as what I'm about to talk about. Hit 'em Up is a diss song by Tupac featuring the Outlaws, a group associated with him. It's the B-side to the single How Do You Want It, which was released in 1996. The song lyrics contain vicious insults to several East Coast rappers. Shakur's former friend turned rival, Notorious B.I.G., also known as Biggie Smalls, is obviously referenced in this. The song was recorded in Los Angeles at Can-Am Studios in May of 1996. Reporter Chuck Phillips, who interviewed Secure at Can-Am, described the song as a caustic anti-East Coast crusade in which the rapper threatens to eliminate Biggie, Puffy, and a slew of bad boy artists and other New York acts. And you're going to play this, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, but uh, it's going to come with a, uh, another closer warning. The song was produced by longtime collaborator Johnny J., and samples the bass line from Don't Look Any Further by Dennis Edwards and interpolates 10% diss by MC Light, Get Money by the Notorious B.I.G.'s group, Junior Mafia, which uses the Dennis Edwards sample as well. The video itself, described as infamous, it includes impersonators of Biggie, Puffy, Lil' Kim, and the members of the Junior Mafia. Hit em Up had a large role in exacerbating the East Coast-West Coast hip-hop rivalry following its release. The East Coast rappers insulted in the song responded through tracks of their own. The controversy surrounding the song is due in part to Shakir's murder in a drive-by only three months after the song was released. So right now I'm going to suggest that if you have a sensitive ears wherever you're listening or if you yourself might be offended, maybe just hop forward like 30 seconds, because I'm going to play that right now. Now be deceased, little Kim, don't fuck around with real 
time it is. I don't even know why I'm on this track. Y'all niggas ain't even on my level. I'ma let my little homies ride on you bitch made yeah, ass yeah, bad yeah, boy bitch. Up, yeah. Feel get out the way, yo, get out the way, yo. Biggie Smalls just got dropped. Little move past the mat and let me hit him in his back. Frank right so yeah, that's uh, hit him up. <laughs> and that was June of 1996. Oh uh, God, you're making me look back at notes. Well, no, I'm thinking about the proximity between that release and his shooting. It's three months. Yeah, three months. Okay, it's three months. Yeah, that is a brutal song. That is, kids. If you're gonna write a diss track, look at that song. You can take some notes from there. Yeah, because cheese and crackers. That is a brutal song, including like he references actually sleeping with Biggie's wife. Biggie's wife, yeah. So eek. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. So of course the song is widely considered by the hip hop community as one of the greatest diss tracks ever due to its explicit lyrical content and seriousness of violent intent by Tupac and his colleagues toward their competitors. I mean, this diss track is rough. It gets nasty. It doesn't pull any punches. Not like I, 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 I'm no expert, but I'm. I guarantee you, this is one of the greatest diss tracks ever put to tape. <laughs> Proverbial tape, yeah. Proverbial the, the royal tape. tape. Royal tape. I, and it's not even trying to hide anything. They no, don't, they don't mask the names. They just go right into it. Yeah. yeah. And he does threaten violence. Mm-hmm. And I mean, ugh, ugh. so I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it should be safe now, kids. If you're listening, this should be okay it, from now on. All those Taylor Swift songs seem a little more uh, tame. <laughs> yeah. It? Well, okay. Have you ever listened? I know you haven't, so I don't even know why I'm asking this. Yeah, I just, just I'll, yeah. I'll just ask our, our I don't audience, know what haven't I listened to. Like the Team Ten diss tracks, like Jake and Logan Paul will diss no. track each other, and it's it's seriously I've heard better diss tracks from Strawberry Shortcake. I know like, the, the Beastie Boys and Eminem had a few back and forth. Yeah, and and the one that the Beastie Boys put up against Eminem onto the Five Burrows, yeah, is <laughs> so good because they take the Eminem formula of making songs and diss him throughout the track, and yeah, but that, that's for another time. That's that's coming up so because we're going to do MCA, right? We're going to do uh, MCA. Late MCA. Patron saint of documentarians. I mm-hmm. love him. Adam Yuck. So, of course, as with every episode, we are at the night. On the night of September 7th, 1996, Tupac was in Las Vegas, Nevada to celebrate his business partner, Tracy Daniels Robinson's birthday, and attend the Bruce Sheldon versus Mike Tyson boxing match with Suge Knight at the MGM Grand. After leaving the match, one of Knight's associates spotted Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, an alleged Crisps gang member from Compton, California, in the MGM Grand Lobby. Earlier that year, Anderson and a group of the Crisps had robbed members of Death Row's entourage in a Foot Locker store. Knight's associate told Tupac, who attacked Anderson, assisted by his and Knight's entourage. The fight was captured on the hotel for video surveillance. After the brawl, Tupac went with Knight to Death Row-owned Club 662. Shakira rode in Knight's 1996 black BMW 750iL sedan as part of a large convoy. So before I go on, basically they went to this boxing match in a Las Vegas hotel and then got into a fight in the lobby of that hotel, which was caught on security cameras. If you've never been to Las Vegas, let me explain to you that Las Vegas is basically George Orwell's 1984 personified. Every single step that you make is on tape. Also the fact that Tyson was pretty much at his peak then. 
the buzz and security around surrounding him alone would have been extreme. Uh, just the presence in, again, the MGM Grand. And the fact that Death Row owned the nightclub. That's the other piece of it. That's that's I, really questionable. Also, this happened at 11 o'clock at night. Have you been to Vegas and been on the Strip at 11 o'clock at night? I'm asking, you, been I'm asking you personally. Oh, me? Per- of course. Yeah, Have you been absolutely. on the Strip? Yeah. Was it empty? No, it's packed. It's There's so much traffic. Yeah. There are so many people out. Foot, foot traffic and car traffic. Yeah. It's a party city, so there's constantly people out there. And after a fight, that city would be humming. So at 11 o'clock or 11.05, they were halted on Las Vegas Boulevard, which is a massive... I'm sorry, I get frustrated at this so much. They were halted on Las Vegas Boulevard by Metro Bicycle Police for playing a car stereo loudly and not having license plates. They were found in the trunk of Knight's car, and the party was released without being ticketed. The cops were with them at 11 o'clock to 11.05. At 11.15, I am so, I'm, I got my red up right now. At 11.15, when they were stopped at a light, a white four-door late model Cadillac with unknown occupants, pulled up to the right side of Tupac's sedan. Well, it was Suge's sedan, but Tupac was in it. Someone inside rapidly fired gunshots at Tupac. He was hit four times, twice in the chest, once in the arm, and once in the thigh. One of the bullets went into Shakur's right lung. Knight was hit in the head by fragmentation. And I should say this at this point was like, Tupac, I think, went into shock. And didn't even realize that he had been hit. Probable, sure. Because he told Tupac, or he told he told Suge they needed to go to the hospital because Suge was bleeding. Shakur's bodyguard, Frank Alexander, was not in the vehicle. He said that Tupac had asked him to drive the car of Shakur's girlfriend, Hedita Jones. After arriving at the scene, police and paramedics took Knight and the wounded Shakur to the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. According to an interview with the music director, Gobi, while at the hospital, Shakur received the news from a death row marketing employee that the shooters had called the record company and threatened him. Gobi informed the Las Vegas police but said that the police claimed to be understaffed. No attackers came. At the hospital, Tupac was heavily sedated, placed on life support machines, and ultimately was put under a barbiturate-induced coma to keep him in the bed. While in the intensive care unit on the afternoon of September 13, 1996, Tupac died from internal bleeding. He was pronounced dead at 4.03 p.m. The official cause of his death was noted as respiratory and cardiopulmonary arrest in connection with multiple gunshot wounds. Tupac's body, and this is weird, was cremated the next day. Some of his ashes were purportedly later mixed with marijuana smoked by members of the outlaws. However, E.D.I. Mean claimed in a 2014 interview that the ashes did not belong to Tupac. His fifth album, The Don Killuminati, The Seventh Day Theory, was released two months later, and other posthumous albums followed. Some of that doesn't add up, does it? There's a lot of questions there. A lot of questions. Yeah. There's a lot of weird things that happened. So, me being me, of course, what I'm going to bring to you is 10 of the greatest Tupac conspiracy theories. Because I cannot talk about Tupac without talking about conspiracy theories. Because there is some weird stuff. Okay. First one. What happened with his cremations? Should Knight 
claims that he paid an astonishing $3 million for Tupac's cremation the day after he died. However, the man who carried out the process allegedly disappeared and has never been seen again. There were also inconsistencies in the crematory process. For example, Pac's social security number was not registered in the official death index. Yeah, that, that to me is the most bizarre thing of all, is the one who allegedly carried out the cremation just disappeared, and they say they don't even know if the ashes were Tupac's. Yeah. Well, there's no, like you can't find somebody once they've been burned to ashes. Well, but doesn't this all fund, fall under the jurisdiction of the coroner? <clears throat> I mean, uh, yeah, the, the coroner's office, I should say. Not the you know specific coroner, but the coroner's office for Las Vegas, Nevada. And I want to also say that I think on the final death certificate, his stats weren't right. What do you mean his stats weren't right? Uh, like he was six six feet. Let's say let's see, he's six feet tall, and they put the the body at six three, and like mm. it was missing birthmarks that he had, and uh, his eye color wasn't like like weird stuff was not right. So that one that that's a weird one for me. Okay, so number two, Tupac stage name Machiavelli was a hint that he planned to fake his own death. Of course, Tupac we talked about switching his stage name to Machiavelli, which was the same name as the Italian strategist who pretended to fake his death. And if you switch around the letters in Machiavelli, you get Am Alive K. Tupac's Don the Killuminati, the Seven Day Theory, was also released under that name and featured him as Jesus Christ on the cover who came back after seven days. Well, it's interesting because the book we were talking about on the shelf earlier, remember the writings of Machiavelli? Yeah. We were looking at? Yeah. yeah. Uh, was a patriot, uh, Italian patriot, and a big supporter of his city of Florence, which the Medicis threw him out of Florence so he couldn't get back in. And one of the proposed theories was he was going to fake his own death to return to the city that he, quote, loved more than his own soul. Huh. Didn't we? Did we hit we up? Went to his house. Yeah, went to we his were house. In Florence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nicola Machiavelli's house is in Florence, and you can visit it. So this is number three. Is Tupac still alive in Cuba? There has been endless speculation about the possibilities of both Tupac and Biggie still being alive. But could Tupac still be alive in Cuba? A video which has nearly two million views on YouTube shows Suge Knight joking around with a man that looks a lot like Tupac whilst in Cuba. However, the clip only shows the back of Pac's head. And I've seen this, and it is weird. Yeah, I have not seen that clip. Now, and here's the thing. After going through both of these episodes, I feel like there's there's more evidence to back up that Tupac might still be alive than Biggie. So there's theories um, on both, though, right? There's theories on both, but there's a lot of more. There's a lot of weirder stuff around Tupac. Heck, they could still both be alive. I don't know. <laughs> uh, number four. Did Suge Knight plot the murder? Death Row Records boss Suge Knight was in the car with Tupac when he was shot, and some people believe that he may have been involved. Although no link has ever been proved, the mogul was charged with murder after allegedly running over two men and killing one following an argument on the set of Tupac's movie All Eyes on Me, and that's the Tupac biopic, uh, All Eyes on Me, in 2015. I remember when that happened. I don't remember the incident. I remember the movie coming out, but I don't remember the... Oh, yeah, no, because I was was listening to... um, KFI the day that it happened and they oh. were kind of all over it because that happened out here hmm. and I I remember the day that that happened that was huge news it was like oh my god because they got it on I think they got it on tape or oh, they wow. got it on security cameras Jeez. 
So that was like a big thing. And that's what eventually put Suge in prison. Did the FBI stage a cover-up? Many fans believe that Tupac was killed by the FBI in an attempt to end violent rap culture. That's ironic. Yeah. (laughs) In midst of the famous West Coast versus East Coast hip-hop war, there's also a belief that they killed the notorious B.I.G. for the same reason. However, this has never been proven. Of course it's not, because that's that's ridiculous. That one's ridiculous. I'm sorry. Like, I'm going to kill some people so that people don't kill people. What? <laughs> Forgive me if that's... If that, sorry if that sounds convoluted, but um, I also think the FBI has, like, more things to worry about I would imagine. than that. Uh, number six, Tupac left clues in his lyrics. Some fans believe that Tupac was sending cryptic clues to his fans through his music. On Richie Rich's N-Word Done Changed, he rapped, I've been shot and murdered. I can't tell you how it happened, word for word, but best believe that N-Word gonna get what they deserve. On another song called Life of an Outlaw, he raps, All for the street fame on how to be managed to plan shit six months in advance, to what we plotted, approved to go on, swole, and now I got it. I'm terrible at puzzles, but I don't know if there's any clues in that. Some, someone picked it apart. I don't know. Someone. Did you rearrange the letters to get that? I don't know how you got that. Number seven. Was the Notorious B.I.G. involved? Tupac was good friends with the Notorious B.I.G. until Pac was shot and robbed in the entrance of New York's music studio in 1994. Tupac then sparked a feud with Biggie after accusing Puff Daddy of having some kind of involvement, which they both denied. And as far as that goes, I have no opinion on that. I don't know yeah, if they. I don't they, know what to say. I don't know if they did. I don't know if they didn't. I'm not sure. I have no opinion on it. After Tupac's death, Biggie was also infamously killed in a drive-by shooting, and we talked about that in the last episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, you should go check it out. Uh, number eight. What was Tupac's seventh-day conspiracy theory? <sighs> Didn't we just talk about that? No. Oh, we didn't? No, No, we're talking about conspiracy theories. This is a conspiracy theory within a conspiracy theory. Oh, okay. Wrapped in an enigma. So many. Fans have noticed that the number seven is frequently consistent throughout his life. (sighs) (laughs) He was shot on September 7th, age 25, so 2 plus 5 equals 7. He officially died at 4.03 p.m. 4 plus 0 plus 3 equals 7. His birthday is the 16th of June, 1 plus 6, etc. Some people believed that he would return after seven years. However, he did not. Yeah, I don't know about that one. I mean, okay, there is a thing where we try to make sense as humans. We try to put an order to things that we don't understand. And who was I talking to yesterday? I don't Um, know. I can't remember who I was. I think we were talking to Brandon. I think I was talking to Brandon. Never mind. So I was talking to someone about that exact same thing just yesterday. It was that we look at things and try to make sense and try to create a through line. It's a weird thing our brains does. Like, okay, say you buy a Honda Accord. You might not have ever noticed that there were other Honda Accords on the road, but once you purchased a Honda Accord... All of a sudden, you start seeing the same Honda Accord. Oh, we were talking about that. Yeah? And I talk about the RAS, Reticular Activating Sensor. Okay, go into that for a second. Uh, So there is a part of the human brain which basically filters important information in and out because the brain can't take everything in at once. It would just blow up. So the original function of this was to survive. If a person was hungry, 
the activating sensor would try to filter out everything except what could bring them food. You know, where animals were going, where plants were growing, where fruit was available. So it's a very pre, you know, it's basically something that's existed for humans for, you know, the entire time we've been on the planet. As society increased, obviously, so has the level of overload. So the things that get filtered out by our brain would actually shock most people, the amount of information that's filtered out versus filtered in. Uh, because, again, the human mind has to preserve itself. So in the case of Honda Accord, it's something that may not be on your radar. And the brain may have filtered it out because it deemed it unnecessary. Now that it is something that is relevant to you, your brain is now more active in finding things that are related to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So this is something that people experience all the time. Maybe it's a, a television show that you've never watched. Maybe it's a car that you just purchased. Uh, maybe it's a particular product that you never paid attention to in the past. And now suddenly it's, quote, everywhere, end quote. I think that's part of the brain's, it's called a reticular activating sensor. And it's what, again, filters information out to help you focus on the things that it deems to be relevant yeah and i think that it's the same idea with the 27 club how so well studies have shown that the amount of people that die at 26 and 28 are kind of relative to the people that die when they're 27 and funny enough i was just talking about the 27 club with the guy when i was standing in line at ralph's trying to get toilet paper <laughs> <laughs> we started talking about you know the 27 club but n there's nothing to indicate that 27 is like the magic number for someone to die at. But we've placed importance on that number. And so when someone else dies that's 27, we're like, oh, it's the 27 club curse. Like, it was never important till someone made it important. Exactly. And so I think that's the same thing as like we're drawing connections between the number seven. And so I... <sighs> I don't know how much weight this has. It's interesting, and it's really interesting how the human mind works, is how we try to find these connections and relatability within these things, but I don't think it holds any it, weight. What you'd really need is someone who's into numerology to take a look at that, because I know that's the... I don't want to know if it's a science exactly, um, but the idea of numbers and the impact they have in our lives. So if there are any numerologists out there... Yeah, send me an... It, message <laughs> us. I, I'm serious. I'm being completely serious. I know a lot of people subscribe to it, and they look at things like birthdays and important dates, and they do glean information from that, which is beyond my, my skill. I don't have that. I would love for someone to do, like, my, my like rising, my moons and stuff like that. I've always been interested in that. I it's just, an area of expertise, people. Yeah. Some people have it. Uh, okay, our next one is, did Orlando Anderson kill Tupac? Mm. Now, I've brought this up several times at this point, but seriously, go listen to the last podcast on the left do their podcast on this particular episode. Do we know what the police report said? Because I want to sort of weigh it against what has been already done from a legal standpoint. I se Separate basically speculation from law. What I gave you was the official. Was the official report. Okay. So one of the most popular theories surrounding the death of Tupac is that gangbanger Orlando Anderson was the killer. Pac was involved in a fistfight with Anderson while walking through the Las Vegas MGM Grand following Mike Tyson's boxing match. Anderson was later shot to death in Compton very soon after Tupac's death, following a gun battle that left two other men dead, which is weird. Yeah, it, it's, it is odd. It's a little, like, I get a little bit of a taste of Lee Harvey Oswald slash Jack Ruby kind of vibe with that conspiracy theory, hmm. which is the kill the killer 
and you oh and you, I see what you're saying and okay. you cut it off. I I don't have my own personal belief as to who possibly killed Tupac, but there are tons of theories out there. There are tons of books out there. There are people that have said they killed Tupac. There are people that have their own theories, and I, I do implore you to go check those out. Some of them are really interesting. I just I can't place my own. Yeah, we are not passing any sort of like legal <laughs> ramification on this. Just know this is. No, you have to talk into. Th- this is the stuff that we've researched. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of open-ended things here, so nothing is. Yeah, I'm not even going to speculate yeah. on who I actually believe killed him. Yeah, so no, I don't. The next one is that Snoop Dogg could have saved Tupac's life. Uh, the Hollywood actor and comedian Faison Love believed that Snoop Dogg had connections within the Crisp Gang to stop any potential threats on Tupac's life. In an Instagram live session, he added that Pac's tension with with Snoop set off a chain of events that ultimately led to his death. I I literally don't know anything about that one. Yeah, I know nothing about that. Own story on that alone, I'm sure. Yeah, it's. I mean, I don't know, but that that whole Chris game has a link back to another one of conspiracy theories, so that comes up a lot. But I I I don't know. It's this is one of those things where you just like I have no opinion on this. I I can't speak on this. Um, the next one is that rumors that Tupac Shakur is alive have surfaced once again after claims that he was actually behind bars. Conspiracy theorists are convinced that the rapper who was shot and killed in a drive-by shooting in 1996 actually survived the execution and went into hiding. Now, bizarre new evidence, and that is in quotation marks, has emerged to suggest that Tupac, also known as Tupac and Machiavelli, and that's, I should say, that's Tupac, T-U-P-A-C, also known as the number two P-A-C, and Machiavelli is in a Los Angeles prison. The rapper has previously served time in prison on sex abuse charges, and so there are records of this, but apparently a newly found booking from 2017 and 2019 appear to quote-unquote match Tupac's identity. According to the YouTuber ex-con Cody Lacey, when searching using Tupac Shakur and his date of birth, two entries come up. For two different people? I don't know. There are rumors swirling that Tupac is living behind bars, and the booking records are from April 14th, 2017, and the second is April 26th, 2019, which is weird because that's how the Sublime Song starts. April 26, 1992. Mm. Anyway. Sorry about that. That was me doing a weird connection with numbers. Anyway, with the the details matching Tupac, including his height and weight, because no other person on the planet could possibly be the same height and the same weight as Tupac. That that is weird, yeah. That is so weird. Guys, Tupac is alive. I'm telling you, Tupac is alive. This is Tupac. Tupac. Not everyone was convinced at Lacey's discovery, pointing out how easy it is for someone to give a fake name when being booked for arrests. <sighs> so those are the 10 most popular Tupac theories. And again, I condensed those to their basic, just smallest details. Because there's a lot That's, of others. There's a lot of others. Not only that, but like every conspiracy theory, it literally has a book's worth of evidence and I said that with the bunny ears, um, to back it up. So me just reducing it to literally like a couple sentences is taking it down to the base level. So like if you're interested in any of those, there are books and books and books and books and books and news articles and YouTube pages and literally 
so much information about those. And that was just boiled down to its basic minimum information. So in the end, here's the thing. Both Biggie and Tupac's death are super frustrating. One with Biggie, the investigation was so botched from every single level that there was there's no way that this is going to be solved ever. And with Tupac, the thing that's so frustrating is the lack of any witnesses or any footage, anything, in one of the most filmed places in the world. And then you have deathbed confessions. You have you have people that were claiming that they were there. You have people that, that say, like, I know who killed. It's so frustrating because even 30 years later, we are no closer to finding out who truly killed either one of these young men than we were on the nights that they were killed. It's crazy, yeah. It is so frustrating, but... I hope that you guys are entertained by the East Coast, West Coast rivalry. And I wanted to finish off because, of course, I like to finish on a thoughtful note. I thought I would leave you with three quotes from Tupac. The first one is, reality is wrong. Dreams are for real. Which I love that one. I'm not going to say I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the brain that will change the world. And I love that. Like, I'm going to create something that might set the next person off to create something that will change the world. That's a really cool quote for me. And here is my favorite quote by him. It might be one of my favorite quotes by anybody. My mama always used to tell me, if you can't find something to live for, you better find something to die for. And that concludes our episode on Tupac. I hope you guys really like that. I really, like, seriously, please go read all the information that's on the uh, show notes. Check the books out. Check out the the biopics for both of the artists. There's just so much information. And do check out the last podcast on the left. I mean, they took a massive deep dive into the, the entire East Coast, West Coast thing, focusing on Biggie and Suge and Tupac and breaking everything down. And then I think they actually do come to a conclusion of who they think killed both of them. And so I, I highly suggest them. They're, they're gems. And LD is going to roll out our <clears throat> socials here in a minute. Uh, if you have thoughts, theories, comments, again, jump in. Join the conversation. Yeah, please do. We're, we're stuck in isolation. So I need some emails. Give us some love. <laughs> um, I know times are tough. And so I am still going to give out our Patreon. And I appreciate our patrons that do donate to us. Thank you guys so much. We couldn't do this show without you. But uh, our Patreon is patreon.com backslash rock'n'rollheaven. You can find us on Twitter at rock'n'rolllt. You can check out our Facebook page at rock'n'rollheavenpod. Our Instagram is rock'n'rollheavenlt. Still not saying our website. And you can email us at rock'n'rollheavenlt at gmail.com. And if I went too fast, all that information will be in the show notes. I would really like to thank my husband, William, for... Not complaining too much about having to do this episode. I don't think I complained at all. I enjoyed it. I'm glad I, I'm glad I could be here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that you sat in this room and talked with me so I didn't sound like a crazy person. Because that would happen. Like, no one wants to hear that. Just me alone. <laughs> but in these trying times, guys, uh, make sure you reach out to those that you love. Pray that everyone is practicing social distance that you're all as healthy as can be that you have the supplies that you need and you know just reach out to your fellow man in these hard times because in the end 
we need each other and you know our relationships are so important during this time so yeah social distancing social distancing does not mean social disconnecting remember that oh you should write that down i should that's really good yeah i will okay all right thank you guys love you keep rocking in the free world hey will yep can i take a nap yes you can okay (laughs) all right bye In the morning and I ask myself It's like worth living, should I blast myself? I'm tired of being born, even worse, I'm black My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch Cops give a damn about a negro Pull a trigger, kill a nigga, he's a hero Get it back to the kids, who the hell cares? One less hungry mouth on the welfare First ship them, don't let them deal with brothers Give them guns, step back, watch them kill each other It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead I got love for my brothers, but we can never go nowhere Unless we share with each other we gotta start making changes Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers And that's how I'm supposed to be How can the devil take a brother if he's close to me? Uh, I let it go back to when we played as kids But then change That's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah I see no changes, all I see is racist faces Misplaced hate makes disgrace to racist We under, I wonder what it takes to make this One better place, let's see race to waste it Take the evil out the people, they'll be acting right Cause both black and white, and smoke a crack tonight And the only time we chill is when we kill each other It takes skills to be real time to heal each other And although it seems evident, we ain't ready to see a black president uh, It ain't a secret or concealed the fact The penitentiary's packed and it's filled with blacks But some things will never change Try to show another way, but it's staying in the dope game Now tell me what's a mother to do Being real don't appeal to the brother in you You gotta operate the easy way I made a G today but you made it in a sleazy way Sell it back to the kids I gotta get paid But hey, well, that's the way it is Come on, come on That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah Oh come on, come on That's just the way it is We gotta make a change. It's time for us as a people to start making some changes. Let's change the way we eat, let's change the way we live, and let's change the way we treat each other. You see, the old way wasn't working, so it's on us to do what we gotta do to survive. And still I see no changes Can a brother get a little peace? It's war on the streets and a war in the Middle East Instead of war on poverty They got a war on drugs so the police can bother me And I ain't never did a crime, I ain't have to do But now I'm back with the facts, giving it back to you Don't let them jack you up, back you up, crack you up And pip smack you up You gotta learn to hold your own They get jealous when they see you with your mobile phone But tell the cops I can't touch this I don't trust this when they 
stay black I got a stage strap And I never get to lay back Cause I always gotta worry about the payback Some buck that I rough that way back Coming back after all these years Right tap 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 That's the way it is that's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is Oh yeah That's just the way it is Things will never be the same That's just the way it is It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 